Now we move into our sermon today, and the series that we're doing is called Kingdom Craft. If you haven't been here for uh, either of the previous sermons, what we're talking about is how God uh, gives us the command to love our neighbors as the main way that we are called to change the world around us. That This whole year we've been talking about this command to love our neighbors, and we've talked about it doing a lot of different things, and, and mainly right now we're looking at how loving your neighbor is the primary tool that God gives us to change the world, which is very foreign to our Western mindset because what they taught you in civics class was that when you realize that there's something that, change, that should be changed around you, your thoughts should be, there ought to be a law, and you go to your legislator, and that's how we get things done. We've been trained to believe that um, politics, as we call it, is the way that you get things done. And so as Christians, when we try and figure out how are we supposed to be conscientious and how are we supposed to shape the world, we look to the Bible to tell us how should I, what should I go tell my legislator to do? And what we've realized through this study is that that's not the way the Bible approaches solving problems in the world because the Bible has a completely different base mindset about what the problem is in the world. In our first sermon, we talked about how human beings initially, we assume that the problem is scarcity. There isn't enough to go around, and that's going to make people fight. And so to stop people fighting and to make sure that there is enough to go around, we need to put somebody in charge, and that person should control all the people with the weapons, and they, or that group, should set everything right. We're going to use power to solve all the problem of scarcity. And that's what, that's what governments do. That's what they've always done. But that first week, we, uh, we looked at the fact that the Bible diagnoses a different problem. From the biblical perspective, we don't have a problem of scarcity because God is generous. And all throughout the story of the Bible, God promises to provide what is needed for the world for his plan. The problem is that we don't like what he offers us or we don't trust what he offers us. And so the real problem is anxiety, this sense that human beings have that there isn't going to be enough and that I need to take control and make sure that I get what I want, that I get what I need. That's actually the root problem. And the thing is, while you can, restrain, you can restrain people's anxiety with laws and with, with military and with police and those kind of things, you can't fix it. And so the, kingdom, the, the, the Christians, as we're part of the kingdom of God, we are part of the mission to actually fix the root problem. And that problem is fixed by, can only be fixed by people having faith in God and faith in what he gives them, and actually trusting what he's doing in the world. And so last week, we looked at how God called together this nation of Israel, and he gave them a law, and that law was meant, among other things, to train them to trust in God. So it had no central government in the law of Moses. There was no one, no one person or group in charge to put things in the right way. And there was no standing army. And when they did call out the militia, the first thing they did was send anybody home with the slightest excuse. Anybody who might have the slightest reason not to fight, they sent them home because they were meant to learn that God wins battles, not armies. And then they also were required to constantly take breaks as an entire economy. The entire economy had to shut down once a week twice, or a seven, so one, once every seven days, seven holidays every year, and then one year every seven. I don't know if you've experienced something like this before. I once made the mistake of not filling up for, uh, on gas when I was in Enterprise um, on Christmas Eve, and I was supposed to drive up to Lewiston the next morning, and nobody was open. 
The gas stations were shut down. The entire place was shut down. I had to fill up at a farm, one of the farm. It was the best gas my car has ever had that I got from that farmer. But like, we never experienced a Sabbath like that. Everything shuts down. And, if, and once every seven years. And what that did was it trained them to trust that God was going to provide for them. It wasn't a result of their hard work or their military prowess, but God was taking care of them. And then the other thing that the law did was it trained them what to do with that generosity from God, that they weren't supposed to hoard it or use it for their own benefit, but they were supposed to share it. For instance, you are supposed to share Sabbath. That's why everything has to shut down. You don't work, but you also don't let anyone work for you. You don't get to go out to eat on Sabbath because the people who work in the restaurants get a Sabbath too, right? And then you're also supposed to be in these patterns of forgiving people's debts and freeing slaves and giving back land. All these patterns are supposed to train you to be generous with God's generosity. So that's what we looked at last week was this inspiring design that God gave the Israelites for a community built on his grace that shared his grace. Today, uh, we are going to talk about how that turned out for the Israelites. In order to do this in five weeks, we're going to cover the entire rest of the Old Testament in one sermon. So Joshua to Malachi, um, just about a thousand years. But what we're going to be doing as we look at this story is I want us to look at the things that, caught, that caused Israel to fail. Because ultimately they did fail. And they, but they failed, for our benefit, they failed for a whole bunch of different reasons that we can all learn from. Because human, you know, human nature doesn't really change that much. Right? We still have the same base problems today that they had back then. And so we're going to learn from the issues that they had in trying to follow God's design. So we're going to start at the beginning of Judges, which is after God conquers the promised land. And uh, he has Joshua lead them in, conquers the promised land, gives everybody the land. And then Joshua, the last central leader of Israel, is going to die. And then they're going to have to start living out this design. And in Judges 2, it says, After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had been seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. After that, the whole generation had, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served the Baal and the Asherahs. Okay, so not a great start. First generation after, they get, after God gives them the land, they start worshipping other gods. Have you ever wondered why the other religions were so tempting to the Israelites? Anybody here just been sorely tempted to join a different religion? Is that something that we really experience? Like, would you, that hasn't typically been the problem with Christians, right? We've tended to just corrupt our own religion. We don't tend to, like, en masse join others, right? So why was it tempting for them? Well, it was tempting for them because these other religions had a completely different foundation to them. See, here's the thing about God. God can't be bought. And the reason God can't be bought is because he's already gracious. He's already given us what we need. So he's, he's giving you what he's going to give you, and, and it's, he's generous with you, but you can't buy more from him. 
So whatever God gives you in terms of material success, that's the material success you're going to get. You can't change it. You can't give him extra sacrifices and get more, right? And so the Israelites, they started living under God's design, and God would, would follow his plan with each of their lives. And you might find yourself thinking, man, I really wish that I had a bigger, a bigger uh, crop. I really wish my business was doing better. What can I do for that? Well, God is not going to give you more, because God gives you enough. Right? He's already, he already loves you and is giving you what you need. But, turns out, there's this, there's this God down the road who can be bought. Because that God, the, foreign, or the, the Canaanite gods, they actually had needs. They were part of that scarcity mentality too. And so the gods, for instance, they needed food. So I could go to this God who's in charge of agriculture and I could sacrifice to that God and now that God owes me one and that gives me some spiritual control over my crops. All right, so the difference is that the foreign gods actually buy into that scarcity mentality. They're actually part of that idea that there isn't enough to go around, but you can find ways to get what you need. You can find ways to get what you want. You can take what, you can use power to take what you want. Turns out they've just extended that into the spiritual realm. So the temptation of following other gods is that other gods will give you not just what you want, they're not just what you need, they'll give you what you want. It's the exact same thing that happened to Adam and Eve, right? God gave them every fruit in the garden except for one, and they didn't need that one, but they really felt like they wanted it. And so they took it. That's what happens with the idols. And so they're following these foreign gods. And so in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. And this is the story of Judges is about cycles like this over and over again, where they follow the God, they, they worship foreign gods, and then God allows them to be attacked and to be defeated, and then he delivers them. Now, why does God, is, is it just because, it says it's because he's angry. Does God just want to hurt them for disobeying him? That's not what's going on. Remember, Israel is meant to send a signal to the world that God's grace can be trusted. And what's happened is they've confused the message because they've started bringing in other gods so that now people could give credit. If, if God just keeps blessing Israel, people can give credit to all these other gods that they've been worshiping. The whole point is that God is the source of generosity. God is the source of grace. And the world needs to be able to see that. And so what God does is, okay, you're going to depend on those other gods. Well, I'm going to give you what those other gods can give you, which is not actually anything. Right? And so he allows them to start failing in battle, and they get attacked and conquered, and they, they don't actually do that, very, that well as a nation, except when God decides to deliver them. And so finally, after cycle after cycle after cycle, they finally le learn their lesson, like the rest of us. Right? They learn their lesson. The problem, the reason we keep losing is because we don't have a king. Right? Like God told them, if you worship other gods, you're going to get oppressed. I'm going to allow that to happen. They worship other gods, they get oppressed, and think, man, the problem is we don't have a strong central government. We don't have a person who can fix these problems for us. They say, we want a king over us, then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. That's the problem. We didn't have the right power structures. We didn't have someone in charge. So instead of trusting God's grace, the Israelites tried to control their fate through spiritual and political power. They tried to use force, whether it was the, the um, idols that they worshipped, 
or choosing a king. Now, choosing a king is not on its face wrong. The law of Moses said they could choose a king. He said, when you choose a king, here are the things he needs to do. The problem is why they chose a king. God says that they chose a king because they didn't want me as their king, because they didn't trust me. And so the reason is that they, they're, they're choosing a king as a substitute for being faithful to God. They could just trust God's grace, and that would actually solve the problem. But they'd rather just trust a king that they can see and interact with and who can be bought. Right? That they, want some, they want a central power that they can interact with in that kind of way. And because they ask for a king under those circumstances, that small compromise, that small departure from God's grace begins to lead them down a path that ultimately they can never recover from. Because relying on power led Israel away from God's vision into corruption and injustice. It's interesting, when you, when you look at the law of Moses as a political document like we did last, year, last week, like as a document that, that structures a certain kind of society, and then you look at what happened under the kings, you realize that this is what's going on. But let's look at the first three kings. Saul. Saul, one of the things that he does as you trace his story is that Saul established a standing army. They weren't supposed to have one, but every time he see, they call out the, the militia and there's a really good, there's a farmer who's a really good fighter, he hires that guy to work for him in his personal army. That's how David ends up, right? God, right? David ends up serving Saul as a soldier. Yeah, there's no place for that in the law of Moses. That was something that Saul developed because his job is to defend them from, defend Israel from enemies with military power. So he builds an army. Problem is, once you have an army, you have to keep the army happy, right? And one of the things that keeps soldiers happy is profit. And so the big mistake that, you, that the Bible calls out for Saul is that once he's got this army that he's got to keep happy, he starts fighting wars of plunder. Right? You're not supposed to fight wars for profit in the Law of Moses, they have very strict rules about what you do when you conquer a place and, and the reasons why you go to war, and it's not supposed to be for profit. But Saul and the army end up with this weird, complicated, circular relationship where the people plunder their enemies because Saul told them to. But Saul told them to because he, he tells Samuel, they were pressuring me to do it. Like, they have these cross-expectations. They've got this, this cycle of anxiety as everybody's afraid and concerned and and trying to stay in power and keep things under control, right? Saul stays in control by keeping the army happy, and the army um, wants a central leader who will give them victories, and they just get this weird mentality going that is completely different from what we see in the Law of Moses. So God removes Saul from power, and he puts David in power, and here, this is the king after God's own heart. Everything's going to be great, Right? Not if you actually track with the law of Moses and what it was supposed to look like. For instance, because David actually builds on what Saul is doing. Saul has a camp that will travel around and he has some soldiers with him. But David conquers a city and makes it his own personal royal possession. And he creates a centralized government there. So Jerusalem becomes the focus of power and bureaucracy. He also took control of the Ark of the Covenant which if there is a separation of powers in the law of Moses, it's that the priests are supposed to control the Ark of the Covenant. He actually sets up his own sons as priests. 
And he does all this. He also, he creates not just a national army, but a personal army that is, answers only to him. And he builds this empire by conquering, conquering all these cities around him. And the culmination of this track is when he holds a census. And there's a story about him holding a census, and we, we generally don't track much of what that census reveals about David, but the reason why it was wrong for him to hold a census is because a census shows that the king is getting ready to fight, and he's going to decide where he, whether he's going to fight based on how many soldiers he has, which is exactly the wrong mentality, right? Because they're supposed to decide whether they're going to fight based on whether it's right and whether God is with them. If God is with them, it doesn't matter how many soldiers they have. If God's not with them, it also doesn't matter how many soldiers they have. But David himself, has, because of the institution he's been placed in, has gone down this route of centralizing power and of creating an empire that he hands off to Solomon. And Solomon is where it really comes off the rails. Because if you read the passage in the Law of Moses where it says, if you ask for a king in Deuteronomy 17, here's the things he must not do. It's like Solomon read that as a to-do list. He does all of them. The very first thing he does is he marries Pharaoh's daughter, who is the first of his 300 foreign wives and 700 concubines. Now, that is specifically forbidden by the law of Moses. Now, we, always, we often assume that he did that out of lust because this is a guy who can't control his libido. But he didn't meet these women before he married them. He wasn't wandering around Jerusalem having meet-cutes with girls at the well, right? Like, these were alliances, he married the Pharaoh's daughter because he wanted an alliance with Egypt. And she, that makes her an ambassador, so she gets to bring her God with her. And so he marries all these women for political influence, and they get to bring their gods with them. And he's basically importing gods into Jerusalem for the sake of these political alliances. So what does that tell you about where he's putting his trust? He's trusting his alliances with all these other kingdoms, not God, because he's willing to disobey God's law and import foreign gods for the sake of the alliances that he thinks are actually keeping his empire up. He also stockpiles horses and chariots, which you're not supposed to do. Again, he's trusting in military power. He abolished the tribal structure and he appointed governors over regions. In, he divided it all up into districts and put his own guys in charge just of complete the centralizing of power process. And the ultimate huge red flag is he enslaved the Israelites. Solomon is basically now Pharaoh. He has, he has, so the vision that God has for Israel over here, Solomon's empire over here. And after Solomon gets so bad that the Israelites ultimately start rebelling at the end of his reign and he tries to put it down with the military. He tries to assassinate the guy leading the rebellion. Um, he fails at that. Solomon dies, the rebellion starts, and the country is split in two. And you've got two nations that continue this mentality of, of power and anxiety and, and all of this until they disintegrate. But at this point, when the kingdom split, God calls out the prophets. He begins sending prophets to them. And he sent the prophets to show Israel how far they had strayed from the vision of the law. One of the most common themes that the prophets bring up is how, how far they are from what the law said they were supposed to be. And 
I could, I could really just start reading at Isaiah 1 until I get to Malachi 3 to give you an example. But I'll pull out a couple of them that touch on things we've talked about. Woe to you, in Isaiah it says, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the desert. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, Surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. Remember we talked about how you could buy land under the law of Moses, but every 50 years you had to give it back. So there should be no land barons and there should be no landless poor. They never did that once. Not one time did they observe any of the Sabbath years. They never released slaves. They never forgave debts. They never gave back the land. And so by the time of Isaiah, they've got landed nobility. They've got estates, people who bought land and used that land to buy more land and then built estates on them. And then they've got people who have no, who've completely lost their land and their family would never recover it. And they've got poverty and they've got wealth and uh, this stratified society all from breaking the law of Moses. And so if you don't know that background, you may not understand how important this point is. If you think about just buying property in America, it's a totally different circumstance than when God, as the landlord, has given you a piece of land to be in your family forever, and someone buys it, and they're supposed to give it back, and they never do. They absorb it into their estate. Micah says, they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. You see that anxious mentality of, I need to, I need to stockpile as much as I can. Because an anxious mindset never has enough because an anxious mindset can always imagine needing more. Right? If you're afraid that you won't have enough, you can always imagine a reason why you might need more than what you have. And this is what they do. They just start taking from each other. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. This mentality leads the, the political establishment to become unjust because they're afraid, they're anxious, they need to hold on to power, they need to hold on to wealth, and so they will begin being unjust to others in order to prop up this, this system that they've created. You see how it, how it snowballs. This one decision that they made to, ha- to take on a king in order to, uh, to, to take on a king instead of trusting God, and it generates this whole system that is just entrenched in there, that no, no person, no one person could overturn, could stop. The same thing happens in our own lives as we start to make those decisions. You make one decision to rely on power or force, or you compromise your integrity in one little way, and then you have to do it again. And then you have to do another thing, and then and you, suddenly you're absorbed in this lifestyle where you have taken control in some way, and you're terrified of letting go. Because now you don't just have to let go, but you have to let what you've built unravel. And that's terrifying for an anxious mindset. And so they're sucked into this. Jeremiah, and one of the most famous sermons in the Old Testament, walks into the temple and, he, and God says this through him. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. See, they're going out, and they're, they're robbing other people, and they're committing sins, and they're stealing each other's wives, and they're doing all these selfish, anxious things. And then they come back to the temple to enjoy God's generosity. 
to say, oh, God's always going to take care of us. So that gives me permission to go out and do whatever I want. And that's what it means to call it a den of robbers. Micah says, the faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone, who, everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled at doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. I like that passage for two reasons. One is it gives a good description of that system that's been built up and how everybody, everybody with power is bought into it because they need to hold on to it. Also, I love the, the, the line there, both hands are skilled at doing evil. What he's saying is like, yeah, you may be right-handed, but you're ambidextrous at evil. That's what he's saying. Like, you're, you are ambidextrous at evil, which I think is like you can do it with both hands, right? I think that's a, 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 that stands out to me. And ultimately, what happens with this, as they're caught up in this mindset and this, this desperate anxiety, Israel's anxiety, anxious politics led them to their own destruction. Now, this was God's judgment. He's very clear. He predicts it. He says, I'm going to bring this on you because you have departed from the covenant. He predicted it way back in the time of Moses. But the thing is, God didn't really have to do anything for Israel to get destroyed. He really just had to stop protecting them. Because what happened was, in their anxiety, they started playing off the, the empires nearby. Like, it was like switching between the two gangs in the neighborhood based on which, and just joining whichever one you think is the most powerful at the time. And then finally, they got it wrong one too many times. They were, they were allied with Babylon, and then they thought Egypt was more powerful, so they betrayed Babylon and joined Egypt, but Babylon won. And that's why they got destroyed is because of their own anxious politics. They brought it on themselves. God didn't have to really, he talks about sending the Babylonians. He didn't have to. He just had to stop protecting the Israelites from their own bad decisions. And, and it all got destroyed. But God is gracious. Even in the midst of our constant rejection of him, he is still gracious. And so God graciously promised to preserve the Jews and restore them to the vision of the law. Now, this is, again, there are tons of passages about this, so I'm going to pick out a couple that will help us draw threads through the different passages we've been looking at. Zechariah said, through, through Zechariah, God said, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. So God says, all right, after, uh, after you've been in exile... I am going to bring you back. I'm going to bring so many of you back that the city is going to be full. It's going to be too full for its own walls. You're not going to be able to build walls because of all the people. But you're also not going to need walls because I am going to protect you. Because that's the deal, right? That's the vision. That's the arrangement is that the people would flourish under God's protection and God's providence. They would trust God and God would take care of it. So God says, yeah, that deal is still on. I'm going to bring you back and we're going to get back to that. But remember also that they are doing this for the sake of demonstrating to the world that God's grace can be trusted. So the goal is that the Gentiles will start trusting in God's grace as well. And so God also promises through Isaiah, maintain justice and do what is right for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love in the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. 
So God says, the plan is still on. I'm still going to bring all the, I'm going to bring you all back. I'm going to rebuild the temple. And I'm going to, the nations are going to come in and participate in worship with you. And the temple will be a temple of prayer for all nations as everyone comes to trust in my grace. The plan is still on, even in spite of all of the failures of the Israelites. And so, you would think at this point, okay, the Israelites got themselves into this big of a mess, or the Jews as they're now called. Clearly, when they come back, they have learned their lesson. Humans have an amazing ability to learn the wrong lesson. Right? Don't we? And here they do something very human. They learn the wrong lesson. Instead of learning to trust God's grace, the Jews learned to distrust others. They had two options. Option one is you recognize your own failures and you take personal responsibility, saying we just made the wrong choice. We should not have sought other gods. We should not have looked for other other people to trust. We should have just trusted in God. The other option is to say, wow, man, those Gentiles really messed us up. How dare they judge us? We really need to stay away from those Gentiles because the Gentiles are the problem. And as you read Ezra and Nehemiah, that is their mindset throughout the whole thing. God said through the prophets that the nations were going to help them build the temple. Some Gentiles show up to help them build the temple and they send them away. Say, nope, we're doing it ourselves. Then they find out that some of their men have married, uh, married Gentile women, which is not actually against the law. There are specific nations they couldn't marry. Those nations don't even exist anymore. But these men have married other Gentile women, not against the law. They force them to get divorces, which is definitely also not in the law. And then Nehemiah comes, and what's Nehemiah's project? Building walls. Right? Walls are really important. And everything they do is, has an anxious mindset to it. In fact, let's read just, I'm just giving you one example. On the day the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call the curse down, call a curse down on them. Okay, so two nations, Ammonites, Moabites, were not allowed in the, in the assembly because of something his, that they specifically had done in history, right? These two nations did a thing, and as a result of that thing, they have this punishment, okay? So, what do they decide to do because they read this? When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Is that what the law said? No. It did not say to exclude all of foreign descent. But they kicked everybody out because they had this anxious mindset that they were afraid. They couldn't trust others because they were afraid of losing what God had given them. God took away what he had given them because of their failure, and they blamed others. And they distrusted others. And I think this is a very common attitude for God's people, is that we find ways to blame others and to fear others as if other people can take God's blessing and God's grace away from us is not true, and it's not what happened. But ultimately, the, Israelite, the, the Jews get so caught up in this that by the time Jesus comes around, they are hopelessly fractured. They've, they're following eight different ways, the eight different ideas they've come up with for how to restore the kingdom and how to take control and how to make things happen, and they're all very anxious and desperate, and it's a powder keg that Jesus comes back to. 
And next week is when we're really going to look at how Jesus addresses that. But I want to just give you one moment that kind of draws all this together as you see Jesus respond to the culture that they've created over these thousand years. On reaching Jerusalem at the triumphal entry, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. We talked about this last week, and I've talked about this before, but in that moment, you can see encapsulated Jesus' critique of where Judaism is at this point. You can see him calling out these judgments that had been spoken over Israel, that you were supposed to achieve this vision of being a house of prayer for all nations. You were supposed to, keep your, you know, you were supposed to put your trust in, in God's grace, not in your anti-Gentile policies. Right? Your hope was supposed to be the fact that you were following God, not that you were racially pure, not that you had kept all the others out. And instead, what you've done is you've created a new den of robbers where you go out and you, you do all these terrible things and you have this anxious mindset and you, you take from others and you scrabble for power and you fight the Gentiles. You do all these things throughout the week and then you come into the temple and you think God is going to sustain you in that. That's not the kind of kingdom that God sustains. That's not the kind of kingdom that God wants. They still haven't learned the lesson. So Jesus called them in that moment. He's calling them to act to overcome their anxiety and return to the vision of the law. And one of the surprising things that we don't, uh, we don't have statistics for how many Jews became Christians, but it's likely that the majority of Christians alive in the first century did end up becoming Christians and end up accepting that call. But there's an important thing to notice about what Jesus is doing here. And this is where we're going to close is the fact that he's not just a new Jeremiah telling people one more time to get it right. He didn't show up and tell them to try harder. He called them to trust in God's grace, and then he proved it to them. And he did something that would change them. This is how Paul describes it. Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ actually reconciles us to each other, right? It tears down those barriers that we've erected as we compete with each other, as we distrust each other, as we try and take for ourselves. Jesus Christ can actually reconcile us to each other and reconcile us to God so that we can get a chance to start again. Because the problem with trying to get back to God's design for humanity is there's such a long history of hurting each other. We have to backtrack all of that in order to start again. But Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, he restores us, he reconciles us, and he gives us a fresh start. And not only that, but it says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 
So we're not only being reconciled, but we're being transformed. We're being built into the kingdom, right? We're becoming citizens of his kingdom. We're being infused with his spirit so that we can actually be different. And the reason why we have hope is not because Jesus came and one more time told God's people to get his act together, but because Jesus came, told the people to get their act together, and then he gave them a way to do it by dying on their behalf, by bringing them new life, and by bringing them the Spirit of God. And so we actually have a chance of being different, of being the kind of kingdom that God called the Israelites to be, of actually fulfilling the vision of all. And that is what the church is meant to be. Ultimately, we're not meant to be a special interest group that tries to get the government to do certain things. We're not supposed to be a voting block. We are supposed to be the kingdom of God that achieves his plans through his power. We inherit that mission. That's what we are called to do and to be a part of. And that is the mission that Turner Christian Church has and the other churches in Turner. That's what we have for this community is to be God's kingdom to change the world, not through being anxious and taking control of levers of power, but by trusting in God's grace and living a life that trusts God's grace and proving to our neighbors that God's grace can sustain us and that God's grace can be shared. That's the mission that we're called to. But Jesus gave his life to create a community that could be faithful to God's grace. And that's who we can be. So I'm going to ask you as we close, are you a part of God's kingdom? If you haven't given your life to Jesus and you haven't accepted his grace, today is the best day to make that decision. And if you need to make that decision today, if that decision is before you, I encourage you to come forward during the last song to talk to one of the pastors, or if you're online, get a hold of us, talk to a Christian that you know and trust. But if you have accepted God's grace I want to ask whether any of those pitfalls that the Israelites fell into sounded familiar. I'm betting that most of them did. I have definitely done all of them. And so what I would ask you to consider is rededicating yourself to trusting in the grace of God. Spend some time tracing back where was the point where you started trusting in something else, where you started scrabbling after something else, where you decided that you needed something more than you needed God's grace, and start to unwork that. And you know, it's not something you have to do on your own. That's something that you do with the aid of the Holy Spirit, and it's also something that you do as a part of this community. And so I'd encourage you to find other ways to participate in our church. There's a Connect card in front of you. One of the things you can sign up for that we're going to start putting together soon is our dinner groups. We announced this the last couple of weeks, and I, I do want to clarify, to be a part of a dinner group, you don't need to be able to host. But the point is that we're going to get people together in groups to meet regularly. You'll set your own schedule and to have dinner together, maybe invite friends to participate in it. And this will give you opportunities to practice hospitality, to invite your friends or neighbors into the community of love that the church is. We also have other classes you can be a part of, other small groups that you can join, and you'll find them all on your, on your Grow card. There are also many ways that you can serve, um, and you can um, find your serve card in front of you. 
and fill that out if you're looking for a way to give back. But what I want you to do as, we, as the worship team comes up and we sing our final song is to consider what is God calling you to do? What next step does he, has for you, does he have for you? And then commit to taking that. I invite you to stand now as we sing our closing song.